Hey, you. Yeah, you. If you or someone you know is struggling with anything mentioned on today's program, please, 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 please email me at authentic1 at gmail.com. That's A-U-T-H-E-N-I-C-K, the number one, at gmail.com. I am available 24-7-365 to help in any way that I can. I have resources. I have open ears and open heart and tons of hope. I've been freely given all these things and would love to give them to you. Be good to yourselves and each other. Follow me on Twitter using the handle at Authentic and my dog Marla on Instagram at djmarla.gene. During today's program, you will hear AA mentioned multiple times. The individual expressing their thoughts and opinions do not reflect AA as a whole. Please enjoy. This week's episode is very near and dear to my heart. It is with a heavy heart that I released this episode. For the longest time, I thought this episode was lost. However, thank you to the production manager here at KFAI Community Radio. It has been found. Tim C., who shared with me his experience, strength, and hope in August of 2019, passed away on Thanksgiving of this year, 2020. I'm sure Tim would be happy to tell you that he died sober, clean, and serene. This is for you, Tim, and this is for the one person whose life you are going to save after hearing your episode. While editing, I cried a lot, and I laughed a lot, and I hope you do the same. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for being a friend. Thank you for being you. I, I can't get these memories out of my mind and some kind of Listening to Authentic, where we get authentic. Yeah! Here on Authentic, where we get authentic, we talk about all things recovery. Well, what do I mean by that, all things recovery? Well, what I mean by that is if you are still living and breathing on this earth, you, yes, you are in recovery from something. As for myself, I am in recovery from alcoholism. I I'm an alcoholic. I'm also a drug addict. I'm a compulsive gambler. I have an eating disorder. I have bipolar disorder. Really? The list could go on and on and on. Luckily for you, today's show is not about me. It is, however, about two people. First is my guest, Tim C. Second is the one person whose life Tim is most certainly going to save by sharing his experience, strength, and hope with you here today. Because if we help one person, then we've done our job. We want you to know that you are not alone. We are here to smash stigma. We are here to get vulnerable. And we are here to share hope. Without further ado, Tim, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Nick. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, Tim? (laughs) And why you're sitting in a chair across from me in this crazy studio? On a Sunday night? First of all, I I don't like to think of myself as being in recovery so much as having recovered. I want to feel like I've recovered, not like I'm in the act of recovering. And what are you recovered from? Being an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Terminally stupid, a drug addict, and an alcoholic. 
been a, been a, been pretty foolish through my uh, my whole life. I'm you know I'm uh, 69 years old, soon to be 70. I feel like I I finally maybe have my shit together at this point in my life. I don't know that I really had uh, have ever had it completely together before. And some people might challenge whether I have it together or not right now. That's why I say, uh, that's why I like to say um, I'm uh, recovered as opposed to recovering. Maybe that's vain of me to say that I'm recovered as opposed to recovering. I don't like the word re- I don't like it when people talk about being in recovery. You know, I want to say like, recover already. Recover. <laughs> Don't don't take your time with it. No, there's a, there's a whole thing that I remember when I was like, oh boy, years ago, years ago, um, now you know, like 45 years ago or more or something. I think that you know when I don't went out the first time I was in I was in treatment at close by here at a place called Farmhouse. We used to say trying is lying. So. So, so, you know, are you getting what I'm saying when I'm saying trying is lying? I'm, I'm not trying. I'm, I'm done trying. I'm done lying. I don't know. Maybe that's arrogant of me to say that I'm uh, recovered, but I feel like I'm recovered. One, that's one of the things they talk about in uh, AA. Excuse me, I go I go to AA. I, I can divulge that about myself. Uh, they refer to themselves as the first hundred people who had recovered and the people who recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body or whatever. I go with that. I go with that. Excuse me. You identified yourself as an alcoholic and a drug addict. Yeah. When did you start using those substances? <laughs> so long ago, I can't even remember. Um, you know, uh, I started, you know, I, I I had I think I had a problem drinking from the time I was like 12, 14. That's when you started. Oh sure, I started even before that. I was my mother's my mother drank quite a bit, and I was my mother's bartender. That's how I started. You know, my first drinks were gin and coke. <laughs> Can you believe Woof. it? Yeah, horrible. And I remember I used to get my father used to we we we'd have uh, corned beef sandwiches at our house uh, about once once a month on a Sunday, and he'd always let us have a beer, and so that was a big big treat for me having a beer. We drank Ham's beer in ponies, little ponies, and I liked it right away. I, I liked the whole idea, but I saw people having fun. My parents had my parents were party people, and they'd always have parties. I can remember that I I used to like hang out around their parties, and I'd see people drinking, and there was a there was some conviviality, and um, I associated that with uh, drinking. So I I I was hooked at a real uh, at an early age. You discovered that you had a problem with alcohol. I had a problem right from the beginning. Right, but you realized that you had a problem right around 12 or 14, you said. How did you know that you had a problem? I mean, you're, you're <laughs> fucking 12 years old. You're in middle school. Well, let me let me tell you something about it. I, uh, I still scotch from my father. Drinking, and you know, like it wasn't sophisticated at all. It was like slugging it down and stuff like that. So you weren't using a snifter? No, no. My body would lose all control, and I, I don't want to get into it beyond that to say that my body would lose control. I appreciate you not going into details. <laughs> now looking at you as an almost seventy-year-old, I don't think I'm ready for no. any sort of visual. So that was that was a problem when I was fifteen years old. You know, but but you know, I was I, I was hooked on the whole lifestyle uh, f- from being being a kid. You know, I wanted to be I wanted to be uh, an adult because they had fun. They could smoke and <laughs> drink and stuff like that. I had a really un, sort of unpleasant childhood for some reason, and I don't know why. And I always thought that I would finally get past it and things would be okay. As it turned out, they never were. Problems is uh, a teenager, you know, I got thrown out of school. It all had to do with like, a bunch of it had to do with drinking and sneaking around and being a sneak and a bit of a thief. I was, I was a mess, you know, I was, I, was a, I was a total mess as a kid. 
By the time I was 23, my father was taking me aside and taking me to a, a counselor. Son, I think you got a problem with drinking. Could I have a could I have a beer for, before we go off to treatment? <laughs> <laughs> That's what my response was. My, you know, right away I thought, you know, I was sort of like relieved finally, and in some ways that you weren't alone with the thoughts that you were out of control or that you couldn't control your drinking. That or I might, might get some help now because you were already tired. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. By that time, you had already been drinking, so we're talking about the age of 23. You probably started drinking, let me just throw out a number, six, seven? At age, 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 age six, age seven? Yeah. No, are you kidding me? I'm not. <laughs> no. Hey, hey, oh, I, you I, said. You know, I did, I did because I, because I tasted my mother's drinks. Right, so that's when you started drinking. Oh, yeah, I suppose so. Right. I suppose so, yeah. That's when alcohol first touched your lips. So yeah. at the age of 23, you had already been consuming alcohol for 17 years. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I had, I had is turned, when I turned about 17, and you got to understand, I was born in 1949. So in 17, that was, you know, I was in 1966, 67, I started smoking grass and was into the the drug culture. And by the time I was 23, I had graduated to cocaine. Okay, let's back up for a second. Okay. So when you were introduced to drugs, what age were you at? Oh. When's the first time you smoked weed? Oh, probably when I was about 17, 16 or 17. It was fun. We had fun. It was forbidden fruit, you know? It was cool. Was that more appealing because alcohol was more readily available to you since a very young age? Was it just one of those things that, hey, let's take this to the next level? Yeah, I, you know, yeah. So yeah. you were mixing alcohol, drugs, and all that? Yeah. And then you found cocaine? And then I found cocaine. What age were you at? Probably 21. Do you remember yeah. the first time you used cocaine? No, I don't. Frankly, I don't. But I know by the time I was 23, I already had a serious, serious addiction. In hindsight, you can call it a serious addiction. But at the time, what did you think was going on? Is that what you thought was going on? You're like, hey, I'm really addicted to cocaine. Yeah. I or was it like, oh, shit, I can't stop. Take me through what was going through your head at the time. When I was 23? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I can't stop. Can't I'm addicted. St it's already become a problem. For me, and this wasn't casual use at that point in time. What did you like about cocaine? You know, I kept, I, you know, I kept thinking that I thought it would give me confidence. Confidence for what? Mostly in sex. That it would be easier for me to interact socially with women. I was deathly. I, you know, I, I had three sisters, and I was deathly afraid of women. You know, I wasn't afraid of them. But of, of, you know, of girls. I, I wanted to have a girlfriend, but I was absolutely scared to death the thought of asking someone. Now I talk about going to have coffee, but then anything, you know, it scared the hell out of me. Did that stem from, like, can you remember, did that stem from any poor experience of rejection or anything like that at a young age? That fear had to come from somewhere is really what I'm getting at. Hmm. If they weren't related to me, I had a problem <laughs> talking to them. Right. Where did that come from? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. I thought any number of drugs and any number of combinations would make it easier for me to get along. Did it? No. Absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. So the experiment was a complete and utter failure. It still is. <laughs> it still is. I still have problems. I'm afraid of, uh, I wanted to have sex, but I was afraid of the sex act. When's the first time you had sex? Oh, boy. Actually, you know, was I? I was. A, I guess it was. I was a late bloomer. Mm -hmm. How old? Probably when I was twenty or so. Twenty. Okay. And I was in. You know, I. I was in college. And when I was in college, and I was in my freshman year, was the first real girlfriend I had. What was her that name? I had sex. Her name was Marshall. 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 And she was. Uh, she was like uh, Penny Marshall. 
No, the, her, not Penny. Her name was Mar <laughs> Marshall. Was her her first name M A R S H A L L, and she had a twin sister named Sarah, and they were from uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. And I was I was smitten, but I was scared to death. I was still scared to death. Even yeah. though you were in a relationship with Marshall, you were still terrified of her? I was I always felt like I was having gonna have a problem performing sexually. You thought that drugs and alcohol would it make it better. And it didn't at all? No, 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 no. 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 I really didn't. I always felt sort of I've 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 uh, oh, this is I you know this is this is really revealing. Uh, I've always really felt sort of inadequate sexually. Even even you know even when you know I've I've been married a couple of times, and even when I was married, I I felt like inadequate sexually. I'm hoping it changes. <laughs> no, I'm gonna let you go, man. I'm gonna <laughs> let this plane crash and burn. Yeah, you know. No, I'll like, change the subject for you. Okay, let's go back to 23 when your dad first took you to see that counselor. Yeah. What did that look like? He well, said, "Son, I think you have a problem." I uh, he didn't say that to me. No, he said, "I want you to meet this guy." I want. I don't remember him saying that to me. My father wasn't a person to confront me pretty much about anything. He was a um, mild-mannered, I thought. He wasn't about to confront me. He'd have somebody else do it. He'd uh, introduce me to someone who would say, you've got a problem. Okay, so what did that first interaction look like with the counselor? Well, the guy asked me a bunch of questions, and it became obviously apparent that I had a problem with uh, drinking. It came apparent in your own mind. Well, I I knew it. It was right out in the open. Yeah, it came it came out in the open. It, you know, they didn't know how bad. I don't think my my parents knew how bad it was, but it was bad. Two DWIs in a year, and couldn't seem to get my act together at all to go and get a job. I found myself living with some people, and you know, it was just a sort of a. a unwelcome guest at that point in their house and I couldn't find a place, you know, I couldn't find a place to live. I couldn't take care of myself. Um, so you went to go see this counselor. What yeah. what came of that? I went to treatment. You went to treatment. I went to treatment did right you, here at St. Mary's Hospital. Did you ask to go? Was it suggested of you? It was suggested that I needed, needed it. Yeah. And you agreed. Did you put up a fight at least? I was compliant. Compliant. I complied. I complied with other people's belief that I needed help. I sort of thought, well, I'll give this a try. Maybe they'll teach me how to drink. <laughs> Maybe I'll learn confidence. And now, uh, hey, it's worth a try, right? Yeah. We hey, we're gonna take a little break, and we'll be right back with some help and what that looked like for you. But first, we're gonna send you to a padded white room.
Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Tim, welcome yeah. back. Thank you. You told me that you wanted to listen to some cream, so I yeah. thought I'd hit you with that. Good. How do you feel about it? I liked it. Okay, Actually, good. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I don't I I don't listen to a lot of music anymore. When I was younger, I listened to a lot of music, but I don't listen to a lot of music anymore. You just listen to the music inside your own head, right? I don't I don't know I don't know about that. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 pretty chaotic. Before we went into the music break, you were talking about how you went into treatment for drugs and alcohol for the very first time in that you were compliant. Mm -hmm. You were talked to by a counselor and it was suggested of you to go to treatment for drugs and alcohol and you were compliant. Why? I realized that my, my father thought it was a, a good idea and I wanted to please him as much as anything. Where did that father-pleasing come from? Was it just regular old father-son, I want my dad to be proud of me thing? Or was there something deeper than that? Oh, my father, my father intervened in my life before. I'd seen psychiatrists when I was... Uh, before you went and saw the counselor? Yeah, when, when I was 14, 15 years old. The whole, the whole recovery thing wasn't really new to me even even at age 23 it was the first time they talked about alcohol or that i I'd, I'd said how much i drank or or how much drugs i'd used i don't even think my father knew at that point i went to treatment at uh, st mary's hospital close by here it was on riverside avenue it was like one of the uh, earliest well not the earliest yeah i think the earliest treatment center was probably hazelden but this one the earliest urban ones they had sort of a they you know way of doing it it was con confrontational did it piss you off no, I know. Confrontational can be almost sounded the way that you said it, like it had a negative connotation to it. Confrontational. It sounds like an argument or a fight. Well, I, I, ended, I ended up subsequently, you know, it, it, St. Mary's was uh, actually less confrontational than what I came, in, came, in, came to later. I went to a place here in the West Bank where we close a, you know, a few blocks from where we are right now, a place called Farmhouse Outpatient Treatment. What were you learning in this outpatient treatment? Well, that it was a piece of shit. <laughs> you know, that's kind of, you know, you're a piece of shit, Tim. <laughs> you know, and uh, it's, it's time that you uh, come to that. And, you know, that's what they, you know, <laughs> that's how I thought, you know, you're messed up. I went to therapy groups, you know, all kinds of stuff, you know. Did you find that helpful? Oh, yeah. I, I don't know if it really helped me. I think, you know, like my father, for instance, ended up thinking it was just screwing me up. Uh, the stuff that I did with the, uh, the farmhouse and and then the therapy that I did. I He said I was just, it got really confused he always yeah, confused I was into you know all this crap my father ended up had a good friend that my father lived in Florida and he had a good friend there who was an alcoholic and he was he he was one of like one of the first people in Hazelden which you know was a long time ago he believed in Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and what I was doing at Farmhouse wasn't the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. What it were was, you doing? It was the therapy crap. It was therapy. It was crap. It was therapy stuff. And it was like navel-gazing, you know? It was like, um, it, it, it wasn't, A's totally different than that. And uh, although you do, you do a certain amount of navel gazing in in, in AA, but it, it it's it's different. It, it has a program of twelve steps that you follow, and it's really structured and orderly. I didn't know I craved that. I didn't know that I I I wanted something to have my my life make sense. My life just you know was just I was a mess. I was a total mess. At this point, were you still consuming drugs and alcohol, or were you completely no, I, abstaining? I quit. 
I quit. So, and how old? In 1973, I, that, that was the first time I quit. And I was sober for about three years and th uh, three, year, three years. Oh, I was miserable. I, I just, I, I wasn't happy. Were you yeah. lost? Did you miss drugs and alcohol? I was too young to quit. Ah, there it is. You know. The I, truth you know. exposes itself. You were too young to quit. 26 rolls around. You decide that sobriety is not for you. I was in therapy, and I got really weird at one point, and I thought to myself, I'm either going to jump out of the room, jump out the window, or I'll get drunk. And you decided to get drunk. I decided to get drunk. <laughs> that was a good choice. <laughs> but, but of course, you get drunk, then there's a price to pay. I felt crap afterwards. I'd failed. And I didn't stay drunk for long, just a few days. And then I went to, uh, went to detox. Did you go to detox the first time around? No. Okay, so this is your first time in detox. This is my first time in detox. Okay, so you get through detox, and then what happens? I called my father. Of course you did. I called my father. And my father came and picked me up at detox. You know, I thought I was going to, like, just go back to what I'd been doing at farmhouse and in therapy and stuff like that. And my father, who had this friend who was in AA in Florida, had coached my father about how to talk to me about it and stuff like that. And my father said to me, you need my help. Yeah, yeah, yeah I need, you know, you get me out of, out of detox. I, yeah, I need your help. He says, this is the help I'm going to give you. I said, what is that? He says, you're going to get on a plane and you're going to go to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Fuck that. Exactly. <laughs> and you're going to go to a treatment center there called Keystone. And I thought, I thought, you got to be kidding me. Who goes, to, who goes to Sioux Falls, South Dakota? Are you kidding me? You know, I want to stay here. My father said, this is the help I'm willing to give you. And it's the only help I'm willing to give you. Did you take that help? Well, I, you know, I was afraid he was, you know, we were in this car. And I was afraid he, he, he was upset. And my father wasn't a, a person to get angry. He didn't get angry. But it was... He was so angry. I was so, I was so moved. I was afraid he was going to break the steering wheel. He was pounding on it so hard, and I I said, "Okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do Just it." Just stop pounding on the steering wheel, <laughs> yeah, Dad. Yeah, absolutely, I'll do it. What have you done with my father? Yeah. So so um, so that, then I I ended up going to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It put me on a plane, and you know I went off in, into this adventure. How was that different than farmhouse? Oh, it's totally different. It was a treatment center, and what they believed in was Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And all the counselors there were recovering alcoholics, and they weren't, they weren't psychiatrists or they weren't psychologists or anything like that. They just believed in AA. The other thing was they didn't confront me. They said, you don't need to be beat up. You beat yourself up enough in life already and you need to be taken care of and some gentleness they treated me very gently they introduced me really gave me an introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous I'd gone to Alcoholics Anonymous before and nominally St. Mary's Hospital believed in Alcoholics Anonymous but you know they had they had encounter groups and crap like that, you know. So you went to Keystone, right? Yeah. How long were you there for? Well, 28 days. What'd you do after that? I came back here and I broke up with my girlfriend. <laughs> oh, Marshall. <laughs> yeah. No, this is a different one. Oh, see, you you said that you got problems with women, but you're just listing off. Oh, I keep, Ooh. yeah, I, I, you know, they liked me. What can I say? They liked me. I was scared to death of them, but they liked me. Another one of those beautiful paradoxes in <laughs> yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. Back from Keystone, where do you go? I went back and just went into my apartment. I lived in my apartment and, and started going to a. I started going to, actually, I started going to a place called the 2400 Club, which was 2400 in Blaisdell. 
and they had a, a club there. I started going there, and they they were just good old time AA. The other thing that I did is um, I, I started dabbling again in the religion that I was raised in. That helped a little bit. That helped a little bit. You are enjoying your time in AA, or at least as much as you possibly can after going to treatment for the second time? Yeah, yeah. How long did that last? Oh, you know, I... How long, how long were you showing up in AA? For, for about another three years. I had this sort of things where, you know, I went on like three-year cycles. I think I went out and got drunk. <laughs> yeah. So you've hit your three-year cycle once again. Uh, yeah, the other thing that was going on is I had some mental health issues, supposedly. Somewhere along the line there in, in, in 1980, after I got drunk again, and they said, well, maybe you should go to treatment again. That's what you did is you just went you went to treatment because it, it was easier in facing, facing life. <laughs> let's, let's, let's go to treatment. And it buys you some time. What were these mental health issues that were presented uh, to you? I, I was, at that point, I was diagnosed as being bipolar. They didn't call it bipolar. Well, maybe they did it. That was manic, manic depressive. depressive. Doctor said, well, I, th- I think you might have a problem with manic depression or bipolar. So we suggest that you take lithium carbonate and take that as a, a medicine. So I did. How long did this second drunk last? Sh- uh, short. Very it was short. just it you. Was... You like those short little spurts? It's like no, no, oh, I gotta no, make sure that no, I'm... just get you know just yeah just get through about two hangovers and then I'm ready for treatment again. Treatment again, and then how long did this next stint of sobriety last? Then I I got involved with a uh, oh another a new woman. God, you are just painting a picture <laughs> of two Tims right now. Yeah, a new woman who actually was a um, uh, she was a bartender, but she didn't drink. She was sort of a, she had been a stone alcoholic, but she quit on her own. Tough. She was tough. So I started hanging out with her. Subsequently, we married at some point in time. I didn't drink for about eight years or something like that. Eight years and change. Then I started smoking grass again. I had a, I had a friend. I was actually a friend of hers, and I had a friend, and I started going to the movies with him once a week. Started smoking grass again. Were you drinking at this time? No. Then I, I got divorced, and then you know, Katie barred the door. What did they say? What did they say? I don't know. All bets were off. Off to the races. Off to the races. I sort of, you know, I had been taking this lithium for a while with this doctor, and then the. Same, same doctor. Um, then he says to me, uh, I, I wasn't on a very high dose of it, and he says, well, maybe you don't need it after all. And this is the guy who diagnosed me in 1980. And I said, what the hell do you mean? You're the one who diagnosed me as being bipolar. Now you're telling me that I'm not? And then, you know, and he says, well, you know, maybe you don't need to take it. And so I, I quit taking it. Then I started just cycling off into never never land somewhere some point in there i was getting on in age and i was getting up to be about 40 and i thought i thought you know this is the how how about someone who's bipolar starts thinking starts thinking like i gotta see paris before i die like i'm gonna die right away you hear so i decide that I'm gonna go to Paris. I had some money. I'd gotten some money. I didn't, you know, I'd inherited some money. So I, I, so I went off to Paris. In the process, in about that time, I started drinking again. That was like, I went on a, essentially a 25-year-long uh, relapse or binge. Didn't get straight until I was almost 65. 65. A 25-year <laughs> binge. Yeah, yeah. If that isn't a binge. Well, I just, you know, I just I just sort of gave up and said, you know, I'll do this. So I started drinking. Time to go.
Welcome, welcome, welcome back one last time to Authentic. Sitting here with Tim, talking about his eventual rise to being a recovered alcoholic. Tim, we've gone over how you started, why you started, what that looked like. And then you came to a place where you were starting to get help for this thing, this thing that you couldn't control. So you'd get a period of sobriety, and then you'd drink for a couple of days. And then you'd get another period of sobriety, and then you'd drink for a couple of days. And then you decide to go to Paris because you are going to die soon, and you go on a prodigious 25-year bender. Give me the abridged version of that 25-year bender. It was the first time I um, started to experience homelessness. I, I, I went to Paris. I thought it was so great that I moved there. So I came back and gave away everything I owned and decided to move there. Of course, I only had <laughs> I only had nine months worth of money. Then I had to come back. Then I started to experience homelessness for the first time. What did homelessness look like for you? What did it feel like? <laughs> you know, I was just you know I was out of control. I was just you know I was you know I was drinking all the time. And um, give me a day, a typical day in the life of homeless Tim? Oh, it was, it was you know, I, when I came back in the uh, town from France, I went and, and a, a guy said I could stay at his warehouse space and I'd sleep on his couch and I'd sleep on his couch and that, I didn't have any, any place, real place to live. It was a nightmare, it was a nightmare. I started working in a, uh, in a restaurant that I thought was really hip and cool and everything like that. I didn't have a place to live, and I was working in this restaurant, and I'd hang around there until 2 o'clock in the morning when it was closing time. And then I remember that I one night I, I stumbled upstairs in this place and found a couch and laid down on the couch. I went to sleep, and nobody said anything to me about the fact that I slept in the bar overnight. So I stayed there for a year on that couch. <laughs> I said, you know. Couldn't get any better than that. No, couldn't get it. Yeah. And I was, you know, and I was just a, a stone alcoholic. I'd get up in the morning and drink and drink all night. And, it, you know, it was just a nightmare. After that year of sleeping on the couch in the bar. I found another woman. You found <laughs> another woman. I got, you know what I said earlier about like a pattern developing yeah. here? I found another woman he to take care of. He found another no, woman another to take care of. Yeah, yeah. Her name was Beth. She was, she was a beautiful, she was a beautiful woman. I'm still sort of in love with her, you know. But, you know, I, I betrayed her so badly that I, the, 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 we, we married Subsequently, we married, but I betrayed her so badly. What was the betrayal? Oh, never mind, never mind. By that point, you know, she never really liked my drinking, and it was always it was objectionable. But then it got even worse because I I started smoking crack. And how did you find crack cocaine? Well, I'd found crack cocaine long before that. How know. did you rediscover it? I don't know, you know, I, you know, some some guy named, uh, you know, some some guy turned me on to it, and so I started doing it. And the next thing you know, I was cavorting with, uh, carousing with, cavorting with prostitutes. And essentially, why I hung around prostitutes is because they knew where you could get crack, <laughs> and that's, you know, and that's how I betrayed my wife. There's 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 a thing in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in um, Bill's story where he talks about how he essentially couldn't um, be unfaithful to his wife because he couldn't perform. That, that was the only thing that saved him from being unfaithful. He started to become unfaithful after he got sober, <laughs> strangely enough. And, but that's enough about Bill. I was hanging out with uh, prostitutes, but it wasn't to have sex. It was to, to get access to crack. How long were you smoking crack for this last time? Oh, ultimately, I went to treatment again. You know, here we are again. Hey, here we go. Finally, again in uh, the year 2000, and I pretty much quit drinking. But by then, I'd started smoking crack, and I couldn't not smoke crack. I'd come home from AA meetings, 
and I would my sponsor would let me let me out at the door, and the next thing you know, I'd be down on Nicollet Avenue trying to score crack. And um, not that Nicollet Avenue was the best place to score it, but whatever, I'd be down there. I became a, a crack addict. What did crack do for you? It didn't do much for me at all. So it went through a lot of money. I don't know what it did for me. I don't think it was really very. It was just uh, it was a, a total compulsion. It was a, an incredible addiction. How, what did it do for me? Yeah, it must have done something for you. I don't know. I know. I don't know. Was it the feeling that you got from it? Was it the danger aspect of no, it? No, it was a feeling I got. You know, it was. It was like. It was like. It was like better in sex. It was. It was like sex or something. It was like. It was like euphoria. Yeah, and and then I I just became an addict, and that's all I did. That's all. That's all that I did, Nick, was I did crack for 14 or 15 years. I lived in a one-room place, downtown Minneapolis, and I'd scurry out. I'd call my dealer. I'd scurry out, score the drugs, come back into my place and smoke crack. And did that for about 14, 15 years. And that was that was it. Finally, it brought me to... Uh, a total uh, despair, uh, and I, I then I started then I started to have some real recovery. I'd gotten divorced, and I was sort of like I felt so bad about that. I and I that that was the biggest loss at that point in my life, and I could just smoke crack, regret, and have remorse for that. In a way, crack was your solution to your guilt. <laughs> <laughs> You know, what I hear someone say the other day, it was a, it was their, you know, the, the drug or the alcohol was solution to all my problems, and it was the root of all my problems. That's what it was. I had gone back to see another, a new psychiatrist. <laughs> you know, um, one that that was appointed to me. You know, it was a, from the county. Yeah, um, and I used to I used to joke that he was one step above a flagman on the, on the working on the county roads. He was probably better than that, and, and I didn't give him so much credit for it. But he used to sit there and look at me, and he said, "We got to get you off that that crack." He says, "That's a young man's drug. That's not an old man's drug." And by the, this time, I'm starting to become an old man. He would shake his head and say. We gotta get you off that drug. But he never confronted me. He never beyond saying that. He never you know, he never said you're going in the treatment or whatever or anything like that. He just let me go. And, you know, I'd I'd come and see him every three months and he'd give me prescriptions for uh, medicine. And then one day I had a problem and I uh, I couldn't see him for some reason and I became totally, amazingly despondent, despairing. I thought, oh my God, I gotta wait another three months to see this guy. And I became just total despair. Finally, at about five o'clock, this this started in, in the morning, about five o'clock in the afternoon, I said, I really need help. And I called 911 and I said, I need help. And they said, well, what do you mean you need help? I said, well, I need help. And they said, are you going to kill yourself? They said, no. I said, no, I'm not that stupid, you idiot. I'm not going to kill myself. <laughs> but I sure wish I was dead. That's what I, that's what I felt like. I wanted to be dead. I just couldn't think of a good way to get there, a painless way to get there. You know, I, I, I didn't want to shoot myself. I didn't want to jump off a bridge. If I jump off a bridge, the next thing you know, I'd break two legs and I'd be a mess the rest of my life, limping around and stuff like that. That's you know, real I, despair. Yeah, you know. So I couldn't find a good way to kill myself. And so uh, I was just, uh, as soon as I you start telling them you need help like that, they get real serious. And they dispatch, they, they dispatch people. And the next thing you know, I, I got two cops on my doorstep. We aren't screwing around here anymore. They saved my life by coming. They got me in the they got me in the back of the car. They said to me, "Well, you got two choices." <laughs> and I said, "You know, I thought this is going to be good." I said, "What are they?" They said, "You can go to HCMC or you can go to Fairview Hospital." And I'd already been through Fairview 15 years before, and I thought it would be easier 
going to Fairview. So I said, take me to Fairview. And that started my recovery. That's how it started. And I got to, Fair, I got to Fairview, and I'm in, the, in their waiting area. They're doing all sorts of stuff. And I finally said to him, I said, do you have some fucking pill that will make me feel good now? Will you help me? And they gave me, I think they gave me a shot or something like that. Got me through that tough spot. And the next thing you know, you've turned your, your will and your life over the care of God. That essentially is what happened as I turned my will and my life over to these people. And they took, they said, here's what you're going to hear. Here's what you do. They put me in a psychiatric ward because they didn't know what the hell to do with me. And then they got me ready to go to treatment. But I had gotten to the point in my life where I could hardly even walk. I could hardly even walk. I just was taking baby steps. And so... Literally and figuratively. Literally. And, yeah. And I was in... I I think I was in the psychiatric ward for... 15 days or something like that. And once you got out? I went to treatment. I went across the street to alcohol and drug treatment. Another 28 days. (laughs) Another 28 days. Okay. So you get out of there. Then what? The hell are you going to do now? They tell you when you're in in treatment, they say, you know, they... You gotta, you gotta go to an outside AA meeting, and you gotta get a sponsor. And I was afraid that if I didn't get a sponsor, I couldn't come back to their meeting. So I got a sponsor, and that person helped me, took me through the twelve steps, took me through the 164 pages of the bit, what they call the big book. I started to, I started to take some advice at at this point in time in my life. And I don't know I don't know what the hell happened, Nick. But you know, my life is nothing like what it's ever been before. And I am I'm in a whole new dimension. I'm so happy. I can't believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I still take medicine that the psychiatrists give me. And I'll probably keep taking it. You know, some people in AA don't like you to take that stuff. I say the hell with them. They're my doctor. Fuck them. Excuse my language. Fuck them. They don't know. They don't know what I've been through. And they don't, they don't know. You know, they said there's some of those people don't believe in the, the whole diagnosis of bipolar, you know, whatever. Well, I can tell them that it is a real thing. I know exactly it is a real thing. I've experienced it my off and on my whole life since I was in my 20s. And so, whatever. So You joked around a little bit about that you couldn't figure out a way to kill yourself, so you didn't. And there was this pattern. I noticed multiple patterns throughout this story of your eventual finding the thing that would nourish you mm-hmm. and continue to save your life on a daily basis, and that's a power greater than yourself. Mm-hmm. But that didn't necessarily exist, at least not to this degree, when you were in active use. It just blows my mind that someone that has gone through that many treatments, has gone to those lengths, has gone to a crack addiction, goes out for 25 years after having six years of sobriety, you know, three years, a couple of days, three years, and you go out for 25 years and then you find crack. You don't really hear too much about people that drink themselves to death. What you hear is, oh, this person overdosed. That's like the, the big story that you hear. You never really hear about the alcoholic that dies of cirrhosis of the liver, even though it happens every day. Mm -hmm. The big news story is how drugs are running rampant. When people's lives end in a multitude of ways, when they're using drugs and alcohol, could be an accident, could be suicide, could be anything really, could just be an accident. You get hit by a car because you weren't paying attention. Mm -hmm. Why wasn't that you? Just blind fucking luck. You know, that I survived this luck. It's it's um, just luck, the luck of the draw, and, you know, you know, and a certain maybe a certain resilience, um, but 
you know, I, I can't explain it. Uh, obviously, I've done everything I can to screw myself up. And, you know. And yet, and yet you're still kicking. Why I'm you? I'm still kicking. Why you? Why, why, I don't know. He's, he's, got, uh, he's got a better, better thing for me in the future or something like that. You know, I'm starting, you know. Next month, I'm going to the Holy Land. I've never been. I never thought I'd want to go. And I'm going. And I want to go. And I want to go. I've poo-pooed born-agains people. And yet I'm born again. I don't make a big deal about it. I don't wear it on my sleeve. But I'm, I'm pretty much a Christian. I've been dabbling in it all my life, off and on. I was raised a Catholic. I'm a cradle Catholic. And I've come back in my age, in the last five years, back into my religion that I grew up with. You've come back into this religion, and you say that it's blind luck, luck of the draw, that you are sitting here with me having this conversation and not six feet under, right? Blind luck. Well, Earth, it's, you know. Because you weren't one of those statistics, Tim, that must mean in some way, because of the faith that you now have, that there's something there for you, like you just said, like there's a plan for you. What do you want your legacy as a human being to be now that you are where you are and you've gone through what you've gone through? What do you want your legacy as a human being to be? Well, you know, I, I you know, I, I guess I, I guess, when, you know, I want to offer uh, hope to, to people that there is a solution, that there is a salvation. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, God, I don't know, Nick. I, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, how do you offer that solution on a daily basis? If you want to help somebody, what does that look like for you? How do you help people? How do I help people? One of the ways I do right now is uh, I, I started volunteering. Volunteers, to me, were suckers. Who the hell's going to volunteer? Pay me. Are you kidding me? And now I give countless hours volunteering. And working with, working with um, people who are like on the margins of uh, society, homeless and uh, alcoholics, and you know, I I work at um, I work at uh, a program in the church that I go to that has an outreach to people who are in poverty or in homelessness or whatever. We minister to them. That's what I want to do. Well, Tim, what I'd like to say to you is thank you not and i'm not saying thank you for coming down to the station and talking for an hour and change that's not really what i'm thanking you for because this is something that you were meant to do this is this is part of the plan that's what i feel in my bones but i want to thank you for helping me because that's what you said that your purpose now is is to help people mm. and i want you to know that you've helped me thank you and you've been a part of saving my life. That's, that's what I talk about in recovery or being recovered, is that I couldn't do it by myself. I had to figure out what a power greater than myself wants for me. And what that power greater than myself, who I choose to call God, wants for me is to listen. Listen to other people and not to myself. And by listening to other people, God speaks to me. And I truly believe that God speaks to me through you. Well, he speaks to me through you, too, I tell you. I've enjoyed getting to know you. I don't know how long I've known you now. I've since, you know, you work at uh, in your regular job. You work where I volunteer, so I've gotten to know you there. And somehow or another, we started spending a little bit of our time on Sunday mornings together, talking to each other. And I gotta tell you how much I look forward. You know, I go to my 7:30 mass, and I do my stuff there, and I'm in that. And I, but I always look forward to coming downstairs with the coffee and the donuts and Nick are, and we have a chance to talk. And um, it's 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 been, it's been really great for me. Let's, you know, I met your mother and, and your father. 
and we've gone to a baseball game together, and I've become friends with you. And I didn't, I wasn't really good having, I wasn't good with friends. I had, no, I guess I always had friends, but I've become I'm good friends with you. And I've, I've appreciated, I've been appreciated being here with you. I hope it's, I hope it, you know, I, I hope it, I hope it was uh, rewarding for you and um, any, any of your listeners. Thank you, Tim. Thank oh. you. You know, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful to be sober. God willing, I will remain that way for the next five hours, six minutes, and 15 seconds of today. Oh, is that how much is that? That's all we got left, man. <laughs> the countdown oh. has been oh, going you, on. You mean it really is one day at a time. <laughs> no <laughs> shit. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to get drunk tonight. Yeah, well, I'm going to try not to. I'm going to try not to. Don't. Yeah. Tim, thank you for being you, for being authentic, for getting vulnerable and helping one person out there because that's that's why we're sitting in these chairs. It's not Nick and Tim time. It's yeah, egomania. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, Nick and Tim were talking physically, but that's not what happened here. What happened here is hope. That's what happened here. I hope so. Is I, hope. Yeah. Is Tim, that, that that's what you're trying to do? Huh? That's what we're doing here. Okay, that's that's what we're trying to oh, do. Oh, I here. hope I could contribute to it. Yeah, you most certainly have. So thank you again, Tim. Okay. Well, that is all the time we have for today in this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today on Authentic, where we get authentic. Don't ever, ever forget to be good to yourselves. It's important. As always here on Authentic and Keeping Authentic, we have to pay credit where credit is due. The musical stylings you heard on today's program. To kick us off, you always hear Mad Madness by Muse. And then we totally got into Tim's pecs. At the first break, you heard White Room by Cream. Then at the second break, you heard When the Levy Breaks by the one and only Led Zeppelin. And to take us off into the night sky. Casey Jones by The Grateful Dead. Love you, Tim. Casey Jones, you better watch your speed. Trouble ahead, trouble behind. And know that notion just crossed my mind. This old engine makes it on time. Leave Central Station about a quarter to nine. Trevor Junction at 17 2 at a quarter to 10. You know it's driving again. Driving that train out cocaine. Casey Jones, you better watch your speed. 